It's great to hear so much chats and so much socialising. It's just lovely. So we're going to have the Bible reading now. And the Bible reading is taken from Ezekiel 37. It's all of chapter 37 and actually the first few verses of 38, which sort of leads into 38 and 39, which is our combined passage for today. So Ezekiel 37. This is Ezekiel speaking. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I, I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is to Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick, 
so they will become one in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks that you have written on, and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offences. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy, when my sanctuary is among them forever. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Goma with all its troops, and Beth Tagama from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Good morning, everybody. Just going to rearrange the furniture a bit here. Good, thank you. The Battle of Thermopylae and the Battle of Plataea. These are famous ancient battles during the Persian campaign against the Greeks. Thermopylae, some of you may know from the movie 300, the god king Xerxes and the Persian hordes advance on Greece. 
Legend says their, number, their numbers were in the millions. But then at Plataea, a united Greece routes and destroys the Persians forever. The Persian Empire never rises again, and the Greek civilization grew to be one of the mightiest there ever was. It's a story of a people who are united into a kingdom and then annihilate an overwhelming evil. And the result is that everybody knows who they are to this day. That's the sort of story that we're looking at this morning in Ezekiel chapters 37 to 39. God creates a people for himself, God rules them as their king, and God annihilates the ultimate enemy, evil. And why? So that everyone, everywhere, for all time, will know that he is the Lord, the one true God, creator of heaven and earth. I'll warn you now that I don't have a whole lot of neat, practical things for us to take away from this morning. Instead, here's what I think it's all about, knowing the Lord. Ezekiel's pretty big on this idea. You probably heard it a few times in that reading. All throughout the book, we hear that it's about people knowing the Lord. Actually, in these few chapters, it ramps up a bit. We hear it twice as many times in these chapters as we do in all of the rest of the book. Ezekiel just wants us to be awed, amazed by our God in these epic images and stories. So we're not meant to just boil it down to a point and move on. He wants this imagery to stick in our minds and our hearts. He wants us to get caught up in the drama because it helps us to know him more fully. So let's pray for that. Please join me. Heavenly Father, everything you do shows us who you are, shows us what you're like. These chapters are bizarre, but as we look at the way you act so powerfully in them, we pray that you would magnify your glory in our sight. Amen. Okay, so people, kingdom, battle. First we have people. It's the first half of chapter 37, um, verses 1 to 14. And friends, what's the most hopeless that you have ever felt? Imagine for a moment that you're an Afghan in Kabul a couple weeks ago, one who is well known to have helped Australia over many years. You just need to talk to an official at the airport, but you can't get to the front of the crowds. They're seething. When you do, the Taliban fire up, fires over everybody's heads and the crowds scatter and the checkpoints shut for another day. You submit a desperate application online and the Department of Immigration responds that you need to send them key documents via the post. And then suicide bombings. And Australia is no longer evacuating anyone. Hopeless. Some of us here will have experienced depression. No energy to get out of bed, to shower, to eat, or just no desire. You know you're supposed to love your spouse, your child, your parents, but you just feel flat. And then that makes you feel guilty. It's a hopeless downward spiral. At this moment in Ezekiel, the exiles are feeling truly hopeless. They're proud people, patriotic, but their nation has been fractured for centuries, constantly under attack, defeated again and again, and now they've been marched in front of a conquering army like cattle to live out their lives in foreign lands, in enemy territory. 
their only glimmer of hope is the possibility of returning one day to show their grandchildren the crown jewels of the kingdom, the holy city, the temple of God, until those two are completely destroyed. That's what we heard about uh, back in chapter 33. So these people at this point, they are hopeless. They say in verse 11 of chapter 37, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. And as readers, we know it's actually worse. These people don't accept that they are actually at fault for this. Chapter 36 told us that these people have hearts of stone. They don't think they have done anything wrong. We all know that the first step to solving problems is acknowledging the right one, don't we? For families, issues like meal planning or work-life balance or the kids' behaviour at school, these sorts of things can become big arguments. Sometimes arguments melt down into bitter feuds. But it's not like those original issues ever explain the sheer emotional intensity of this. It's because the root problem is different, right? Maybe it's communication or consideration or respect, something far more fundamental. The exiles are not acknowledging the real problem. They don't believe they have been unfaithful to the Lord. Expelled from the Holy Land, the people of the Lord may as well be dead. Verses 12 and 14 promise a return to the land, and that's like being brought back from the dead. That's why we get the cool resurrection picture, with the bones and the sinews and the skin all coming back together again, finishing up in verses 7 and 8. But it's not enough. God's ultimate plan was never for his people to just be in a particular place. And their exile is not the main problem. His plan for them is to live in loving relationship with him. That's the real problem. So returning to the land is really just like reanimating a corpse, like a marionette puppet or something. It's weird and bizarre. It's not alive. The bones and the skin and everything are in place, but verse 8 says, there is no breath in them. So God promises more than that here. He promises something new. Verse 14, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and then you shall know that I am the Lord. God needs a people, but these ones are dead. So God creates a people for himself through resurrection. He fills their hard hearts with his Holy Spirit. Like the breath that brings the corpse back to life, it's what they need to really love and serve and worship the Lord. They are more than what they were before. This is new. They will be a new people. And by the way, that is exactly what happens when we believe in Jesus. We are filled with his spirit. We share in his resurrection from the dead, his actual bodily resurrection. Ezekiel 37 is a fantastic story. But Jesus is the real thing. And in him, we become a new people. We become God's people. So that's the people. We're moving towards the battle. 
but we still need the unified kingdom. So that's the next part, the kingdom. It's the second half of chapter 37, verses 15 to 28. What does God's kingdom look like? The Bible always talks about this in terms of covenants. They're like treaties. They describe a type of relationship with mutual obligations and benefits, but think of great marriages, or even great friendships, or even great business ventures. There's obligations, right? But that really fades into the background of common purpose, of shared respect and trust and love. So think of covenant like that. Don't think of it like the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Don't think of it like the contract you have with your bank for your home loan, anything like that. God makes covenants. He makes them with Abraham, with Moses, and with King David. And in this passage in Ezekiel, he brings them all together. Verses 15 to 22 describe this united federation of mighty tribes. Verse 23, the people are clean and pure. They are God's treasured possession. Verse 24, they're ruled by a king from David's line and they walk in the ways of God. Verse 25, they have the land flowing with milk and honey where they can raise generation after generation of their families forever. Verse 26, they are at peace with God. He blesses them with abundance and prosperity and God himself dwells with them. For Ezekiel's listeners, this would have been mouth-watering. They think of King David and his son Solomon and they think that under those guys, Israel was spectacular. It's justice and prosperity, it's beauty and power and righteousness was legendary. They were the envy of the world. This was the hope that Ezekiel set before the exiles. But, although Israel did eventually return to the Holy Land, they never achieved those heights of glory. None of it was fulfilled. Why do you think that is? It's because this whole passage hinges on this forever king. But he had not come yet. As we look back now, few passages of scripture are this blatantly messianic. That means that it's all about Jesus, the Messiah. Let me show you three ways this is happening here. So first, verse 23, no defilement, no transgression, no sin, it says. Cleansed, purified. Except, normally, Israel deals with all of those things through sacrifice. Only blood can cleanse people of their sin. But there's no sacrifice in this passage. And that would have been really strange to them back then. But actually, even though they couldn't have known it yet, there is a sacrifice here, isn't there? Because the passage talks about a special king. And what we know now is that this king is Jesus. And that Jesus gives up his own life for his people. He pays for their crimes. He purifies them through his own personal sacrifice, with his own blood. So sacrifice, after all, is actually in this passage. The second thing is verse 25. It says, David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Except princes don't live forever. They always die. That's the problem Israel has always had. 
unless this prince is Jesus. Because he rises from the dead to be the king of an everlasting covenant. That's what it says in verse 26. And lastly, did you notice how this passage just keeps overlapping and repeating ideas? One king shall rule, I shall purify them, I will be their God, my servant will be king, my servant shall rule forever, my sanctuary will be in their midst, I will dwell with them, I will be their God, my sanctuary shall be in their midst forever. Are there two different people here? Two different roles? There's not. The lines are very blurry between this human king and this divine patron. They couldn't have imagined what this meant back then. But what we know now, amazingly, is that Jesus is both. Jesus is God and man. The eternal Son of God made flesh. That's the key to this passage. This resurrected people are being gathered into an everlasting kingdom and worshipping Jesus as king is the way for us to be a part of it too. So now God has a people and he has a kingdom unified under his rule. So it's time for battle. And this takes us through the last two chapters, verses, sorry, chapters 38 and 39. These couple of chapters imagine a time when everything from chapters 34 through to 37 has been fulfilled. Do you realize what that means? If God creates his people by sending his spirit and if God establishes his kingdom by sending King Jesus then that time is now. We are that people. The church is part of that kingdom. So what's the battle? The passage introduces Gog. He's some mighty emperor from the ancient world, a byword even. They all knew and feared this name. Maybe it's like how we use the term Nazi. Gog represents evil. All evil all the forces of a fallen world that hates the Lord and everything he stands for. Two whole chapters, we've got a lot to get through, here's how we'll do it. Three things about Gog, one thing about God's people, and then lastly, two things about the Lord. So three things about Gog. First, he leads a massive international force. The nations mentioned throughout those first 13 verses, we heard a few of them when Alexa was able to somehow pronounce all of those words in the first six verses. It covers all the compass points. That's the design here. That's what, that's what Ezekiel's doing. It's the whole known world at the time. Verse nine says, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes. The forces of evil are overwhelming. They surround God's people in every direction. Evil is powerful, pervasive. But in the midst of it all, God's people are quietly confident. Second, Gog is greedy, opportunistic, insatiable. Verses 10 to 12, Gog sees that Israel is peaceful and prosperous, so he devises evil schemes to pillage and plunder this peaceful nation. Evil takes advantage of God's good provision for the world. And evil forces will think that God's people are easy pickings. 
but God's people are quietly confident. Third, Gog may claim that he is actually an agent of the Lord's justice. In verse 17, the Lord asks Gog a strange question. He says this, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? You see, Assyria, when they came, that was God's judgment on Israel. And Babylon's destruction of Judah, the southern kingdom, that also was God's judgment. The prophets predicted those events. And it's common, even to this day actually, for rulers and conquerors to claim that they are God's instruments. The Holy Roman Empire, where the Pope crowns the king. The British Empire, where the king also leads the church. The American superpower, where 93% of all their years as a nation has been at war, mostly expansionist or extractive wars. In God we trust is their national motto. Conquerors always claim divine providence to give legitimacy to their escapades. But the Lord mocks Gog as he tries to do the same. Are you the one? The answer is obvious. No. God's people should be very wary when worldly forces try to claim the name of the Lord. So that's three things about Gog. One thing about God's people Verse 11, a quiet people with no walls, no bars, no gates. This nation is defenseless. Remember all the watchman imagery from earlier in Ezekiel? There's a watchman on the wall. He sees an enemy approach. He sounds the alarm. The people run inside the city walls and the gates are barred. It's the only way to survive in the ancient world. But now they don't even seem to have weapons. Completely unsuspecting. Are they fools? Patsies? Don't they know the world is a dangerous place? Can you imagine a nation today that doesn't have an army, or border control, or intelligence services? Insane, right? But this nation is not defenseless. It finally lives in perfect covenant relationship with their king and God. They don't have walls, they don't have weapons, because they don't need them. The Bible says it is God's to avenge, and he will repay. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave no resistance. He could have called forth 12 legions of angels, but he didn't. He knew God would vindicate him completely. Do we take that example seriously? Faithful believers disagree about what I'm about to say, and that's okay. But I think Christ calls us to non-violence. I think the picture in Ezekiel of no walls, no weapons, is a model for the people of God. Our only weapon is the word of God and prayer. I was a soldier when I became a Christian, and I had to leave the army because I couldn't do violence anymore. Anyway, here in Ezekiel 38, as the hordes of Gog advance... God's people are quietly confident. They're not defenseless. They trust in the Lord. So then lastly, two things about God. First, 
Has the Lord lost control? No. These mighty hordes only advance because he allows it. Verse four, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and I will bring you out. Verse 16, I will bring you against my land. And are the Lord's people unsuspecting? No. When will all this happen? Verse eight, in the latter years. Verse 16, in the latter days. These are ways of talking about an appointed time. This final confrontation with evil will be according to plan. The Lord is Lord of history. It doesn't make our personal experience of evil any easier, but we can suffer it with a certain confidence. We trust that the Lord has everything under control. Second thing about God, and, and it's the final thing, what will God do about evil? What will God do about evil? Ezekiel drags this part out. It's the big point, and he's trying to make something very clear. What will God do about evil? He will annihilate it. His fury and anger burns against Gog. The whole earth quakes with his judgment, verse 18. In the next chapter, verse 3, God strikes down all these foul hordes on the mountains of Israel for the birds to devour. He rains down fire on the places where these evil forces have come from, verse 6. The nation that was supposed to be easy pickings will instead plunder Gog, verses 9 to 10. Then, verses 12 to 16, the holy land is cleansed of every last remnant of evil and a memorial to the Lord's total domination of evil is established in the valley of Hamon Gog. It gets more and more absurd as this goes along, doesn't it? Ezekiel doesn't want to leave any doubt about this outcome. The Lord finishes in verses 17 to 20 by inviting bird and beast to join this morbid victory banquet. What will God do about evil? He's going to destroy it with breathtaking totality. There's only one other place in scripture that depicts scenes like this, and that's the book of Revelation. A single character dominates those pages, Christ. We've already seen that he is the eternal king of our kingdom, and in Revelation, Christ, the divine warrior, meets out page after gruesome page of judgment and vindication. It's not his people doing it. That's why they don't have weapons or defenses. Revelation is the only other place in the Bible that mentions Gog as well, in chapter 20, if you want to have a look at that later. That's one of the main reasons we know that this passage in Ezekiel is about this final confrontation with evil. And what we know from this is that this massive battle, this symbolic battle, is either the present age in general, or it might also be a specific time to come towards the end of this present age. So we're either oppressed on all sides by evil right now, or things are gonna get a lot worse. But maybe you think things are pretty good, really. Many would say the world is better today than it has ever been, and only getting better. But the church doesn't need to be surrounded by a mythical army to feel oppressed by evil. And what's pictured is not so much an assault on the church itself, it's just the whole sum total of satanic opposition to God 
and his goodness and his purposes. Does that sound like the world we live in to you? There's a doco on Netflix called Athlete A. It's devastating. Systematic sexual violation of what seems to be 100% of the USA Gymnastics team, so 14-year-olds, going on for literally decades and with the institutional cover-up going on for almost as long. Lots of gold medals, though. It's evil. Australian police respond to 5,000 domestic reports, violence reports, per week. A huge number of these women are prisoners in their own homes. They have lost all confidence in a justice system that can't protect them, and they fear for the lives of their children. It's evil. God's good creation is treated like a strip mine and a rubbish dump. Entire generations now are anxious that they have no future to look forward to whatsoever. Billions depend on healthy ecosystems for survival, and soon they'll be on our nation's doorstep. It's evil. Maybe one of your kids is bullied at school. I was. It's not rare. And schoolyard bullying is particularly remorseless. How often do we think she'll be right? That's just growing up. But it's not. It's psychological trauma, and it's often permanent. It's cruel, and it's evil. Merely the most well-documented of our own government's callousness is the robo-debt scandal. It was widely criticised as illegal even before being implemented. It led to death and suffering for thousands of the most vulnerable people in our society. A class action lawsuit was settled out of court very quickly, and we all know what that tends to mean. The settlement didn't cost the, those responsible, of course. The federal court called it a shameful chapter and a massive failure. We know exactly which men were responsible for the whole thing, but not a single one of them has resigned or even apologised. It's evil. Haiti. It's been in the news again recently. What a tragic history. Brutal slavery, one century. Dictators and military juntas, the next. And all the 20th century atrocities there were readily propped up by America for no other reason than they weren't communist. The nation was in a bad shape when the earthquake in, 20, earthquake in 2010 hit and killed more than 100,000 people. And they still hadn't recovered from that in any meaningful way when the next one hit just two weeks ago. Evil upon evil upon evil in Haiti. A good friend of mine is a filmmaker. He recently showed me the short film he produced for Dementia Australia. It's to help train and encourage aged care workers to connect with those that they care for better rather than using chemical restraint. It was really powerful and effective. But the tragedy is that the resources necessary to help these practices to flourish and proliferate, there's not going to be forthcoming. It's not because they don't exist. We are a massively prosperous nation. It's just because policymakers and profit makers aren't interested. So our elderly will go on being treated like inmates at Guantanamo Bay instead. It's evil. Is this beginning to feel oppressive yet? I could go on, of course. This is just a tiny sample of evil going on in our world right now in our own nation even. And all of us are directly affected by 
at least some of these sorts of examples. And none of it is incidental or trivial. Don't ever think that it's just your personal burden to bear. It's evil. The world is dominated by evil, completely out of step with compassion and mercy and goodness and abundance of the Lord. So how does the vanquishing of Gog and his hordes speak into this? If your heart breaks over these stories, and maybe you have others that you feel deeply, if they make you angry, this story is a comfort because there is always someone more heartbroken, more furious than I am, more furious than you might be at all of this our holy God, our defender, our strong tower, our rock, our divine warrior. And he is powerful and he will do something about it. We are his people filled with his spirit. We belong to his eternal kingdom. And so he will fight for us. In this final overwhelming confrontation against evil, he will fight for us. Things may get worse, but we can be sure that the Lord is up to the challenge. His glory depends on it. Verse 21, I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. And we shall know that he is the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God of hosts, Holy One of Israel, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Amen.